Let me invite you to grab your Bible and turn with me to Exodus chapter 6. As I said earlier, this past week was a tough week and for a few different reasons. It was the one of the most challenging weeks I've faced in some time. And I know it was even harder for others in our church. So when I opened up this sermon that I wrote a month ago on a passage that we picked out a year ago, and I saw the sermon title, it was another reminder for me of God's loving care for our church. This sermon is titled Rock Bottom. It's a phrase we use to describe a time in our life when we're at our lowest of lows. We, we say that we've hit rock bottom. We, we don't know what else to do or else to turn. And I'm guessing many of you have experienced that in your life or maybe something similar. What's interesting is that this sort of difficult experience is a key theme in the Bible. God's people often found themselves at rock bottom, and it seems that God allowed them to get there so that they would have nowhere else to turn but to him. Think about Abraham, who after decades waiting on God's promise to have a son, then was called to go and sacrifice him. Think about David, who sinned against God in the worst way and was broken before the Lord. Think about Elijah, who was on the run from Jezebel, who wanted to kill him, and he got so low that he asked God to take his life, and on and on it goes. What we learn is that low points in life, when we feel so discouraged and broken that we don't know what to do, are not accidents or setbacks, but they are actually the means by which God teaches us some of our greatest lessons. You see, God doesn't leave us at the bottom, but he meets us there. And he reveals himself to us and shows us what it looks like to depend on him and him alone. If you were here with us last week in our Exodus series, we saw that Moses hit a low point in our story. This is an 80-year-old man who has lived a lot of life. He was born to an Israelite family, miraculously spared as a baby, and then raised by the king of Egypt's own daughter. At 40, he murdered a man and ran for his life, settling down in the land of Midian as a shepherd. That's the place where God appeared to him in a burning bush, giving him the most important task of his life. He was to go to Pharaoh and demand the release of God's people from slavery in Egypt. And then he was to take them to the promised land. And after many excuses and doubts, Moses went. He did as God commanded. And we saw last week that despite that, things did not go well at all. Pharaoh made a laughing stock out of Moses. He punished the Israelites because of him. And as a result, the people turned against Moses and Moses turned against God. See, Moses had obeyed God and done exactly what was asked despite not wanting to do it in the first place. And now he felt like God had not held up his end of the deal. So he blamed God. He said some things he likely ended up regretting. But he was discouraged, broken, confused. He was at rock bottom. And last week we saw how we should respond when we find ourselves in a moment of discouragement like that. We said we must remember the promises of God and the character of God. But today I want to tell you how God responds in those moments and what he does for us when we hit rock bottom. Look with me now at Exodus chapter 6 and let's just start with verse 1. But the Lord said to Moses, 
Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. Remember again how chapter 5 ended. Moses just turned to God, complained, and blamed him. Now notice the pivot that starts chapter 6. It says, but, but the Lord said to Moses. Once again, God is going to answer Moses right there in the midst of his struggles. And here's what he says. He says, now, now, now you will see what I will do. This tells us why God allowed Moses to hit rock bottom even though he had fully obeyed. This tells us why he let Moses fail. It's as if he's saying, Moses, now you're ready. Now you understand. Now is the time. I needed to teach you, Moses, and show you this is not about you, but this is about me and what I will do for my people. You needed to understand that this is going to happen in my way and my timing and for my glory. We're going to see throughout this section that that first-person pronoun from God. He says, I, 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 I. God wants Moses and us to understand that everything that is to come will be by his power alone. If God's people are going to get out of Egypt, if Moses is going to be effective in his mission, it's got to be God that does it. God also sets up for us this key battle that is looming. He says, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. God's focus in these next several chapters will be taking on Pharaoh. And God gives us a preview. He says it won't be Israel that leaves Egypt. It will be God getting Pharaoh to a point where he drives them out himself. Let's keep going. Look at verses 2 through 9 of chapter 6. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say, therefore, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. What did God tell Moses right here? Well, he simply explained it and reminded him of some things he's already said. He says, number one, he says, I am the Lord. Remember, when you you see in your English Bible that all caps, L-O-R-D, Lord, that is God's personal name in Hebrew. It's the name Yahweh. So God reminded Moses that he has revealed himself to him in a special, unique way. Then he reminded him again that he's the same God who made the covenant with Abraham. The covenant is the reason God is going to bring his people out. He promised Abraham that he would make his descendants into a great nation and take them to the promised land. So God reminded Moses that he will not break his promise. He will keep his covenant to his people. And here's what God wants Moses to tell them. And notice the focus is entirely on God and what he will do. He says, 
I will bring you out. I will deliver you. I will redeem you. I will take you. I will bring you. I will give it to you. These things will happen because God will see to it himself. He also repeats himself multiple times. He says, I am the Lord. I am the Lord. Moses, I am the Lord. Moses and the people needed to place their focus on him. In their discouragement and suffering, they needed first and foremost to remember who God is. Verse 7, if you look back at that, we see the reason God's going to bring his people out. He says, I'll take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord, your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Why is God going to do all this? Why is he going to take on Pharaoh in Egypt and bring the Israelites out of slavery in this way? Well, it's so that they will know that Yahweh is their God. See, God wants his people to know him personally. This is relational language. God says, you will be my people. I will be your God. God doesn't want just some big group of people to boss around as some distant deity, but he wants a people for himself, a family of sons and daughters to know him and love him and enjoy him forever. I was thinking about that and when I wrote this, and I was thinking back to when I started dating my wife, Amber. We were young. We were 18 and 17-year-old kids, and I really liked her a lot, and I didn't want to mess it up, which... I have a propensity to do. Uh, she was out of my league, still is. And so I knew I needed to like pull out all the stops. So I wrote her letters and cards and I said all kinds of sappy stuff. And I bought her gifts and treats. And most importantly of all, I made her a mixtape on a CD. <laughs> you guys remember CDs? This man, it's true. I, I know there's those like round, shiny things. You know what I'm talking about? Um, that, was, that was what you did back in 2009. You took a bunch of love songs and you burned it from your computer onto uh, that CD and and you gave it to the person and that was the the mixtape of my love, okay? I wanted her to know who I was and what I was willing to do to be with her. My hope was that all my efforts would prove to her that I was husband material. And somehow, someway, by God's grace and a few love songs, it worked. (laughs) And there was more to come, of course, but... Here's my point. With the events of the Exodus, God is demonstrating to Israel, his people, how much he loves them and desires to be in relationship with them. See, out of all the people on the earth, God had chosen them. And he's revealing himself through his actions so that they would trust him. The Exodus is like the the mixtape of God's love and care for his people. But how do the people respond to this message from Moses? Moses once again obeyed. He delivered the message, but the people did not listen, it says, because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Have you been there before? So beat down and discouraged, you just don't want to hear it anymore. Even good news sounds bad. The people of God had lost faith, lost trust, lost hope. They'd given up, and they themselves had hit rock bottom. So again, the story is pointing us to the fact that only God can remedy this situation If the people are going to get out of slavery and follow Moses, God is going to have to do a miracle. So God turns back to Moses. Look at verses 10 to 13. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. 
But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Once again, Moses turns back to his old ways. After all God has said to him, and remember, he was speaking directly to him the whole time, he still doubts. And yet, once again, God is patient with him. He makes his plan clear and simple. And after these verses, we have a break in the narrative. Look, look back at verses 14, look ahead to verses 14 to 25 in your Bible. We have here what's called a genealogy, which is a list of names showing someone's ancestry. And this genealogy starts by listing the sons of Jacob, who was called Israel. Remember, Jacob had 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. So we see Reuben and his sons, Simeon and his sons, Levi and his sons, all sons of Jacob. But once we hit Levi, the genealogy takes us down the line, all the way to Moses and Aaron, and then it follows the line of Aaron to his grandson, Phinehas. Okay, so what's the point? Why is this genealogy here? Why does it share the names it does? Well, we see genealogies all throughout the Bible, and I know we're often tempted to skip over them in our Bible reading. But we need to understand that the authors of the Bible, inspired by God, put the genealogies where they did for a purpose. This is not just some sort of commercial break. The purpose of this genealogy was to establish Aaron and Moses as the leaders of God's people by showing their background. And that was especially important for Aaron. Chapter 6, Moses has just finished saying, I am of uncircumcised lips, meaning I'm not fit to speak to the people in Pharaoh. And remember, when God heard that the first time, he gave him Aaron. Aaron was provided to help Moses speak. So here we see, we learn who Aaron is and why he's important to the story. Aaron was Moses' brother. So they both came from the tribe of Levi, and we'll learn later the tribe of Levi served a very important function in the nation of Israel. They were the chosen ones who served God in the tabernacle and the temple. So what God's doing here is he wants us to see Aaron's purpose in this story, that it's more than just being a mouthpiece for Moses, but through his lineage, God has been preparing him to serve the people in a special leadership role, and he will. That's why the story picks back up the way it does. Look at verses 26 and 27. These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their host. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. Notice Aaron's name came first. It's not that Aaron was more important, but people knew Moses by this point. It was Aaron's pedigree who needed to be established at this point in the story. So that's why we have the genealogy. God was showing us that he was establishing the leaders of his people, that he'd been preparing them with a distinct purpose in mind all along. Verses 28 to 30, Moses repeats his concern about Pharaoh not listening to him, and here's how God responds. Last part. Look at Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my host, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel. 
from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. This is God's final commissioning before Moses and Aaron begin their battle with Pharaoh. After this point, it's going to come a lot of drama and excitement. But one more time, God reminded Moses of some key things to remember. First, he reminded him of his God-given authority. He said, Moses, remember, you're not qualified for this task. Moses was a self-doubting, God-blaming murderer who was barely hanging on by a thread at this point. So God reminded him again that he's not going in his own power, but he's going to Pharaoh with the power of God. In fact, God told Moses, you will be like God to Pharaoh. One of the things we'll see is that Pharaoh considered himself to be the son of a god. The people of Egypt viewed the Pharaoh as a form of a deity. He was godlike in his authority. So God tells Moses that Moses will be godlike to Pharaoh. Pharaoh is not going to disrespect Moses so easily because when Moses stands before Pharaoh and Aaron speaks, it will be as though God were standing before him and speaking. Moses had the authority of God to bring his people out. Second, God reminded Moses that this whole event is going to be a battle. He tells him again that Pharaoh is not going to listen and he's not going to cooperate. Why? Because God is going to harden his heart. And we'll talk more about that next week. But God wanted Moses to keep in mind that the struggle with Pharaoh was a part of his plan and that he was going to do many great signs and wonders and bring great judgment on Egypt before they would let the people go. He wanted him to see that this exodus would not be easy and it would not be painless. It was going to be a wild ride, so he needed to buckle up and prepare himself. Then third, God reminded Moses here that he is ultimately in control. God again uses that first person pronoun. He says, I will harden. I will lay my hand on Egypt. I will stretch out my hand. I will bring out the people. God is in control. Everything that is about to happen in this story is according to his sovereign plan because he has promised to do it and he will. And he says lastly that the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh. See, not only does God want Israel to know who he is, he also wanted Egypt to know who he is. His mighty display of power and judgment and love for his people will cause everyone to see who is the one true living God. There will be no doubt who's in control in this story. Now this morning, we're going to stop there. And we'll get into the plagues next week, which will be very exciting. But I'm going to apply this passage to us here today. Moses had hit rock bottom. He's full of doubt, discouragement. He blamed God. He was ready to quit. And in this passage we just read, God does three things for him. And these are three things he also does for us when we find ourselves at rock bottom. Here's the first. Number one, God meets us in our discouragement. As I said at the beginning in the Bible, when God's people hit rock bottom, God is not up high looking down saying, hey, get it together, man. Pick yourself up by your bootstraps and get on with it. No, God is at the bottom right there with us. And this is one of the reasons God allows us to get to these low points in our lives. Because when you're at the bottom and you've come to the end of yourself, there's nowhere else to turn but to him. He wants us to see our absolute need and dependence on him. And he will use whatever means possible to get our attention. 
It's often in moments of discouragement that God meets us in the most personal ways. That's what we see with Moses. Seems the lower Moses sinks in despair, the closer God draws to him. God reveals his name, his covenant promises, and his plans to rescue his people. He doesn't give up on Moses and find some new, stronger, better leader. He doesn't guilt and shame him into obedience. He doesn't say, come on, Moses, we've been through this. Get it together. Rather, he takes Moses' eyes off himself and puts them on him. Isn't that what a perfect father does? When my children are discouraged, afraid, or sad, those are the moments I bring them in close and pick them up. When my son hurts himself for the hundredth time every day, when my daughter has a bad day at school and is upset, as a father, those are the moments when I feel drawn to comfort and teach my children. It's in those moments their hearts are tender and open, and I get to remind them that their mom and I are there And we get to teach them some of the most important lessons of life. That's the way our Heavenly Father operates. When you hit rock bottom, listen to me, don't turn to other things to medicate yourself and numb it all away and get by. Don't turn to alcohol or relationships or busyness or social media or whatever. But turn to the God who is right there with you, ready to pick you up and remind you who he is. When we hit rock bottom, God meets us in our discouragement. Here's the second thing we learn. Number two, God prepares us for his purposes. Six years ago, I hit the lowest point of my life. I was anxious, depressed, and mentally undone. I thought for sure I was going to die or spend the rest of my life trapped in my house. The craziest thing about, about it is that on the outside, my life was going great. My wife was pregnant with our first child and they were both healthy and we were happy and excited. My ministry was growing and we were seeing students impacted. I was finishing up a seminary degree and I was doing well. But on the inside, I was suffering in a way I, can't, I couldn't even imagine and I didn't know how to express to others. And it's through that season that God taught me some things I don't think I could have learned in any other way. See, I'd spent a lot of time trusting in myself and my own abilities, and God was teaching me to trust in him. A.W. Tozer, famous Christian author, he said this, It is doubtful whether God can bless a man greatly until he hurts him deeply. The trials of life are the fires that God uses to burn off our sin and selfishness and bring us to greater dependence on him. Suffering is like a scalpel in God's hands in which he removes our idols and makes us more like Jesus. So if you're in a season of discouragement and disappointment, lean in to God. Don't hide. Don't run away. Know that God is at work in your life and it is likely that he's about to grow you in ways you could never have imagined. This is one of the reasons God allows bad things to happen to his people. It's so that we can trust in him and not ourselves It's so that we can be prepared for his purposes and not our own. And it's so that we can be used by God. Here's the third and last thing we learn about what God does when we hit rock bottom. Number three, God sends us for his glory. Despite Moses' discouragement and unexpected challenges, the mission didn't change. God reminded him of who he is and what he's called him to do. 
But he still told him at the very end, Moses, go. Go. Moses was called to go and speak God's message to bring his people from slavery to freedom so that all may know God. And we have the same calling today. As followers of Jesus, you and I are called to go and speak God's message, which is the gospel of Jesus. It's the good news that Jesus has died for your sins. He's brought you from slavery to sin to freedom in Christ. And we do this so that the whole world would know God and the hope we have in him. And this calling is ours when life is good, and it's ours when life is terrible. In fact, I believe it's more important that we stay focused on the mission when we're discouraged. Because when you're at rock bottom, it's easy to lose sight of eternity and what's at stake. We get beat down and we forget that there's more to this life than this life. There's a whole other life to come, and that life is way better and way longer. So as believers, we know our earthly, physical circumstances are not the only thing that matters. How we feel about life and the way it's going is not the most important thing. What's most important is living for Jesus no matter what may come and making sure everyone else knows him. So next time you get knocked on your back, remind yourself that God will bring something good out of the bad. That's the way God works. It's his specialty, even if we never see it in this life. Use the suffering to turn your attention to him, place your trust more deeply in him, and then go to work for him. We know what he's called us to do. It's simple. Love God, love people, and make disciples. Just do that, and you will bring God glory, and you will find all that you need in him. One of the best things I've found to do when I'm discouraged is to get out of my own head. Anybody else just get trapped in your thoughts sometimes? And, and to get out of my house and to get around people who love me and love Jesus. We were not made to suffer alone or to walk through trials alone. So, so that's why when I come back here on Sunday mornings and I get around God's people and I spend time with my family, my church family, God uses that to pick me back up again. And to reorient me back to him and what he's doing. Man, this is why I need the church. This is why we all badly need the church. We need each other now more than ever. So next time you find yourself at rock bottom, maybe you're there now. Maybe you will be this week. We don't know. But we can know that God is at work. He meets us in our discouragement. He prepares us for his purposes and he sends us for his glory. As I spent time this week grieving loss of my friend, I asked myself what Jason would want me to be doing right now. If you knew Jason, then you knew that he had a heart for seeing people come to know Christ. See, before Christ, Jason was a militant atheist. I don't know if you knew this. And God radically saved him and gave him a heart to evangelize. In fact, his Cousin Eric told me that at the time, he said, it would be a miracle if Jason ever became a Christian, but he did. Jason often asked me to pray for his family that doesn't know the Lord, and as I was looking back over our text messages, and I saw a few months back that there was a guy at, at a Sunday school party at his house I didn't know. I asked, I said, who was that? He told me that the guy was there. He was a friend who he'd been witnessing to for years and he ended the message with me, the conversation, by simply saying, 
pray for his salvation. It was funny. It was always the sermons when I preached on sin and hell and like the really hard stuff. When Jason would pull me aside after church and tell me, keep preaching that way. People need to hear that. So there's no doubt in my mind. If he were here today, he would tell all of us to get back up and to get out there and tell people the good news about Jesus. He would want us to carry on the mission that he'd given his life to. So that's what I'm going to do. Life is a mist. We don't know what this week holds. But we know that God will be with us and we know what he's calling us to do, whether at the top of a mountain or at rock bottom. Love God. Love people. And make disciples. Would you bow your head with me?